Hello and welcome to RCSI My Health. This podcast explores a wide range of areas in health and well-being and brings together some of the leading healthcare experts in these fields. Our goal is to empower you with the right knowledge so that you can make informed decisions about your health and well-being. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Hello and welcome to the RCSI My Health series, supported by Fleming Medical. I'm Professor Oren Kennedy, and today we're going to discuss nutrition for healthy growth and development. The series explores a wide range of areas in health and well-being and brings together some of the leading experts in healthcare in these fields with the goal of empowering people with the knowledge to make informed decisions about their own health and well-being. Today I am joined by Dr. Claire Tymon, lecturer in the School of Population Health RCSI, and Dr. Michael Reardon, clinical senior lecturer in RCSI and consultant in nephrology, Children's Health Ireland. Welcome to the RCSI My Health series. As part of the discussion today, we'll address some of the key concerns and worries that parents have around the topic of child nutrition and provide some information and practical advice to parents and caregivers to support the healthy growth and development in children and young people. So Claire and Michael, my first question is to the both of you. Is nutrition a source of worry for parents and what do they worry about? Yeah, so we know that that parents have plenty of concerns about their children's health and well-being. And the research would show us that in line with the topic today, that some of the key priorities are healthy nutrition and being physically active, obesity and uh, mental health issues as well. So being a parent is is not easy and there's a lot of kind of issues to, to weigh up. It can be like a juggling act in terms of priorities and concerns. And we often, you know, hear questions like, are my children eating enough fruit and vegetables? Are they, are they active enough? Um, are they happy? Um, if there's a medical condition there, parents are concerned about whether they're on top of, 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 of the medical condition and whether they're supporting their child appropriately. That's leaving aside any other issues outside of health, like, you know, financial worries and things like that. So, so there's a lot for parents to think about um, relative to their, to their child's health. So focusing on the topic today, which is nutrition, where are we at with Ireland? So firstly, we'd look at from an obesity perspective and considering the childhood obesity rates, although they are high, recent data would show us that there is stabilisation in those rates. So that's a really positive uh, finding. And some data would even suggest that those rates may fall. Now, that's not saying that we're out of the woods there yet, like the rates are still high. So recent data suggesting that, you know, uh, obesity, childhood obesity rates are, are one in five children are either overweight or obese. So, you know, there is certainly progress to be made, but there has been there has been improvement um, in recent years. And then from a dietary perspective, so when we're trying to look at the dietary intakes of our child and adolescent population, a really good place to look is the national nutrition surveys that we conduct in Ireland to kind of give us an idea of where we're at. And these surveys are conducted um, by the Irish University Nutrition Alliance. um, And these are really detailed surveys uh, that are coordinated every so often in different uh, subsections of the population. So the most recent data that we have from both child and teen surveys are roughly from between 2018 to 2020 is the most recent data collection that we have there. And if we compare the results from there to the prior surveys, we can see that there have been changes. One of the most notable ones being that there's been a big decrease in sugar, uh, sweetened beverage consumption, so fizzy drinks, and that's been replaced with water intake, which is a really kind of positive finding. 
Um, there's also been an a slight increase in fruit intake and um, also uh, an increase in wholemeal and brown bread consumption as well. So we're seeing nice uh, improvements in dietary fibre and things like that. Um, some of the uh, other results would show us that there is still a bit of work to do when we think about things like saturated fat, sugar and salt intakes are above recommended at the moment. So um, there is positives, but there's certainly room for improvements there as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And over to you, Michael, uh, would you see similar things or what are the worries that parents have when they come in to see you? I, I suppose it, it, it is positive that parents are concerned about this. And I think it's positive that children are concerned about it as well. And I think there's a mix of um, probably necessary and, un and unnecessary worries in the world. And, and, and the difficulty is sometimes picking those, those out. I mean, the, the sort of classic thing that we would see is parents of young children who are very worried that their children aren't growing and are underweight. And that's actually, that's very uncommon. And, you know, we, we do see children who are underweight in the context of having often a, an, an illness that we are well aware of. But it, it, it is very unusual for, for healthy children to be underweight. You what, know. what might an example of those illnesses be? Um, children with kidney disease, children with some forms of diabetes, um, cystic fibrosis, gastroenterology diseases, you know, that, that those, those children are often underweight despite actually achieving an adequate calorie intake. Um, and, but, but often we know that those children have those diseases. It would be a very unusual presentation of illness in a child to not be gaining weight without any other signs of illness. Whereas a lot of parents would have a concern that their baby wasn't as heavy as their baby might be or their baby wasn't as long as their baby might, you know. And so that puts a lot of pressure on parents and it, it can be difficult you know, I, I do think it is a source of worry, but it's possibly most of the time that worry may not necessarily need to be as acute as it is. And then on the, on the flip side, I think there's a lot of worry caused to families and to older children in relation to over, being overweight. And I think that that's, um, again, I think there's an awful lot of misery coming out in relation to that. And it's possibly not as easy to talk about or not as acknowledged. And so we, we, would, we would address in, in clinic, for example, we'd address weight issues often with kids and families. I think in general, people are often very grateful that it's being addressed, but it is a very emotive subject and, and you have to be really careful not to, to, cause, to cause an awful lot of grief. Sure, sure. And so to follow on from that, then what's uh, what's good? Do you think in the in the present day, what's good, and what are people what are people getting right in terms of children's and teenagers' nutritional intake at the moment? I think Claire's probably a bigger expert about the, on this than me. But I, I, the one thing I would say is we have to acknowledge that all of our children are bigger than they ever were. You know, if you if you go to Glendalough and walk through the doors, you know, we, we, we're taller, we're better nourished. The consequence of being better nourished is, is probably to be, you know, the risk of overweight, but actually stronger bones, better teeth, you know, it, all, all of those aspects of, of nutrition are better. So, you know, the, the consequence of it all is, is the risk of, of overdoing it, but actually malnutrition, as we saw in the, you know, the, the 17th, 18th and the beginnings of the 19th century is, is significantly less than it was. One of the things that I think we're both interested in is this concept that, you know, you can be a healthy weight, but it can be malnourished. So it's, it's possibly a little bit more complicated. 
but um, overall the nutritional standards our diet is a better diet it's more varied there's a lot more um, there's a lot more to it I think it's reasonable to say yeah, no I, I would agree and I think that point as well about you know uh, presenting a normal weight or in some cases potentially even uh, overweight um, but potentially malnourished is an interesting point and we've kind of talked about this in, in preparation for today um, you know the, the concept that uh, in context of, of, of food poverty issues as well and cost of living crisis as well that uh, an energy dense diet doesn't necessarily mean you know a wide variety of, of micronutrients that are really important for for growth and development as well so I think that's really important to think about um, in, in today's kind of current climate in terms of what's what's good, if we think about the, the food pyramid, um, which is a kind of a health promotion tool of, of how many portions and servings of different types of food groups we should be achieving, um, just to take some of the kind of dietary survey uh, results into, into context of, 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 of health promotion. If we look at some of the food groups like so fruit and vegetables, as I mentioned, there has been a slight increase in fruit intake, um, but overall fruit and veg intake is still lower than what's recommended. So our children and adolescents are currently at about three servings a day. Uh, the recommended guidelines is between five and seven. So there was a slight improvement, but there's still still plenty of work to do as well. And when we think of the importance of that food group in terms of providing um, really important uh, micronutrients like vitamin C, uh, folate, great source of dietary fibre as well, which is really important for you know, gastrointestinal health and digestive health and things like that as well. As we progress up then, and we look at the kind of, I suppose, the more energy uh, dense sections of so the whole grains and cereals, um, there's certainly adequate intake there. And we're seeing, uh, you know, um, some wholemeal and brown sources being kind of chosen compared to maybe uh, white alternatives in the past. So that's certainly an improvement. And dietary fibre intakes of our younger population are just about meeting recommendations now, which is a great improvement as well. When we get to the uh, dairy uh, section, um, the recommendations are, are about three portions, but we've actually seen a decline in dairy consumption, particularly milk consumption, um, with the current data that we have to the last survey as well. So that's quite interesting. Like dairy being a really important source, particularly in an Irish context as well, when we think of what nutrients those food groups are providing key source of protein and calcium as well obviously for you know bones and health and uh, and uh, teeth development and then as we progress up uh, through the through the rest of the uh, shelves in the food pyramid um, the top shelf is what we would say is uh, every so often we think of things like treats there sugar sweetened beverages and the data is actually showing us that about 18% of our children's and adolescents' calories are coming from this food group. So that's a key area for, you know, intervention there. And Safe Food have been doing fantastic work um, with their STAR campaign there to try and reduce treat treats and not have them as often um, and, and certain strategies to help parents cope with that as well. But finishing on a kind of positive, as I mentioned before, the sugar sweetened beverage, um, and that's largely down to uh, healthy eating policies in schools um, that would have banned sugar sweetened beverages as part of lunches. Um, so we've seen a huge uh, a decrease in, um, in uh, free sugars in children's diets because water is replacing sugar sweetened beverages now so that's a really positive um point to come out of the surveys yeah it's great it's really interesting and Claire, you mentioned earlier that the survey findings indicated higher intakes of saturated fat free sugars and salt 
Michael, when we talk about salt intake, are there guidelines for children of different ages in relation to the healthy intake of salt? And what's the impact on the body if there's too much salt? Yeah, I mean, it is very interesting. There are, there are very specific guidelines in terms of, you know, the grams of salt that, that would, you'd, would, would be recommended for different ages of, of children. But, but part of the problem is that the vast majority of salt that you get in your diet is, or, and the children get in their diet is from processed food where, where it's really sort of hidden salt and it's very hard to, to, to quantify it or to really work out what that gram amount is. And so I, I think it's interesting that it is such a worry to parents sometimes about salt. There's lots of fights over salt, you know, um, in, 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 well, in, in many households. I'm not going to name them specifically, but... Um, the, the reality, I think, is it's to do with building good habits for the future. And I, I think probably the easiest advice is to say that you shouldn't encourage children to add salt to food that you serve at the table. That you can use salt in cooking if it's necessary for the, the, the cooking to taste nice, but you should, you should try and moderate the amount of salt you put into cooked foods. You should recognise that children will be getting plenty of salt from processed foods and that the habit of sprinkling salt on food is something that should be discouraged, not really in terms of its consequence for children, but in terms of its consequence for, as a habit for adulthood, and what effect it may have on things like blood pressure in, in later life. So I, I'm not sure that it's so much to do with, with, with the risk in childhood, but it's, it's definitely a habit that would be bad in the future. Okay, yeah, it's fascinating. And, and you see a lot of children with parents in your clinic and um, as well as what they do wrong and all of that, what questions do they typically have for you? There's, there's, oh, there's, some, there's some interesting things that, that come up a lot at the moment. Um, and I suppose the, um, the, 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 one of the things we get asked about, which is clearly a source of conflict within the home is energy drinks. Um, and these drinks are sort of um, mixtures of a, of a very high sugar content and also often containing things like caffeine. They are, um, then they're, they're not good for children. They're, they're, they're not in any way ideal. Um, they, they're basically giving a sugar rush and a caffeine rush. They, they're, they're fine if you are a sort of, you know, fighter pilot in, in a war who needs to wake themselves up, but they're not really something that you should be drinking for breakfast as a primary school child. They're expensive and they're, they're, they, they can lead to issues with blood pressure and hyperactivity and things like that. So, so we really, you know, they should be discouraged and I think they're a bad habit for kids. Um, we get asked about, there's a difference between energy drinks and the sort of these, the, the, the sort of, um, the hydration drinks, exactly, the, the, the sort of sports drinks. And again, I think you need to be really careful about the concept that the sports drinks that are very sugary, there is some role in your recovery from very high-end athletic pursuit that those might be of some benefit to you. I met somebody in the clinic recently who had been given the advice by their rugby coach when they were doing quite serious level junior rugby they'd said the best sports drink was diorolite they're absolutely right you know this is this is it's it, you don't need a fancy bottle lots of sugar and, mm -hmm. a, and a sort of and a big marketing campaign it's 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 if you really want to to recover from sporting activity to do with high intensity sweating mm -hmm. 
than diorolites, you know, but, but possibly not as sexy as some of the other things that might be available. Yeah. Just to add to that, anecdotally, we're, we're hearing a lot about from, from teachers that are experiencing children in, in primary and secondary school that are drinking these energy drinks before school mm -hmm. and they're coming in to school in a very kind of hyper yeah, state mm -hmm. as well. And when we think of the, the content, some of these drinks have, you know, 100 milligrams, 200 milligrams of caffeine. And the current recommendations are that really these types of caffeinated beverages shouldn't be consumed by anyone under the age of 16. For, for many reasons um, and, and independent kind of research to the surveys done by Safe Food would suggest that about 60 to 70% of our adolescent population are drinking these drinks mm. and also about 20% of our child uh, population are drinking these as well. Mm -hmm. So it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's certainly an area that kind of warrants a bit more mm. investigation, I think. The other one that we get asked about a lot about is um, sort of protein supplementation, protein powders, protein bars. And again, it's really interesting. There, there's a role for protein supplementation in, in some disease states. You know, there are some people who do need an additional protein fix, um, but, or an additional protein component to their diet that they're not going to be able to get easily from another source. But the, the vast majority of us have more than adequate protein we're not using that protein to build our bodies. What we're doing is just metabolizing that protein into energy. And if we don't use that energy, we're turning it into fat. So it's basically just another, it's another form of calorie intake and it's not particularly useful to us. So the, the, the protein powders, probably people are supplementing, a lot of people will be supplementing protein when they don't really need the protein. If you think about the cost of a, giant container of protein powder, it's amazing compared with the cost of just getting that protein from normal food, mm -hmm. chicken breast, you know, some other source of protein. Mm -hmm. And then the protein powders also, it's not entirely clear what's in them. There are other things in them. There are sweeteners, there are flavorings, there are goodness knows what in some of them. Mm -hmm. um, there's this creat creatine um, supplement, which basically is a, is a muscle breakdown waste product with very little evidence to show that it actually has a nutritional benefit at all. Um, so y you've got a sort of, you know, you've got, you're buying something expensive for something you don't really need when actually if you were to just focus on a really healthy diet, spend less money and you'd get all of the other things that are just not in those powders. Um, and just, I was just going to feed into that point there from the surveys, uh, going back to the surveys again, they would show us that protein intake is not an issue for our child and adolescent population, that they're, they're achieving more through their diet than, you know, it's completely adequate. So there is no need for this supplementation with these protein bars and powders, and particularly at, at those ages. Um, but yet they're, you know, a lot of them are marketed and are being consumed by our, ch our children and adolescents. So. Yeah. I think the, other, the, the last one that we get asked a lot about is vitamin supplements and, and it's difficult to give a, a, a blanket view because that probably is to, to an extent the people that I see that's a health question and it's, it's specific to them. By and large children prob with a eating a healthy diet probably don't need a specific supplement as such. There is evidence to suggest that, for example, vitamin D levels in the population are not what they should be in the, in the pediatric population, or the child population. So that there, may, there may be a role for some supplements in that context. 
But if you're eating a very healthy, well-balanced, nutritionally appropriate diet, you could well not be somebody who needs those sorts of supplements at all. So there's plenty of children who, who just probably don't need them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the, I guess the reason they want them, certainly the ones in my house, oftentimes is because of influence from social media or from uh, advertising. So what do you think the role is for that, uh, Claire? I think research will show us that there's certainly a, a kind of conclusive link between uh, what we might call junk food or the marketing of unhealthy foods um, and, and childhood obesity. So exposure to um, excessive uh, junk food advertisements has been shown actually in research in the UK to actually add to approximately 18,000 extra calories in children's intake every year. And data would suggest again that children are exposed to approximately three adverts relating to junk food or unhealthy food um, every every ten minutes. So there's huge potential there for for children to see these adverts um, and and to to be influenced by them as well. It all sounds a little bit worrying, Claire. Is there any uh, positive news on that front uh, to go with that? Yeah. So not to be like totally negative about the role of kind of digital media there. Like there's preliminary evidence, I would say, to suggest that actually um, healthy uh, eating behaviours um, can be influenced via social media and things like that. Evidence to suggest that children who see their peers online eating well um, and influencers eating well um, has been shown to uh, increase vegetable intake there. So so there is huge potential there for, for, for digital. Um, my research involves using digital technologies to um, improve lifestyle behaviours in, in an adult population. And we're seeing some really promising results there. So I suppose it really comes down to to policy and uh, regulation of these online adverts to try and use media in a positive way um, and kind of outweigh the negatives, I suppose. And is there any uh, anybody anybody else advocating for that kind of thing that'll, that can kind of help you with your research? Yeah, well, I mean, uh, the Irish Heart Foundation are huge advocates in this area. They actually have a campaign called Stop Targeting Kids. And they're really trying to, I suppose, outright ban um, online advertising of, of junk food, as they kind of term it, um, high foods that are high in salt, fat and sugar. Um, that these are banned, uh, on, online advertisement of these are banned, um, that um, TV advertisements for these types of foods, there's currently a ban in place, I think, till 6 p.m., um, but they're trying to extend that to 9 p.m., obviously, you know, taking into account that children are watching TV beyond, uh, you know, 6 p.m. in the evening. Mm-hmm. Um, and lastly, they're trying to advocate for, um, you know, um, banning uh, advertising on any state-owned uh, products like you know bus shelters and things like that any foods of that type of, of nature as well mm-hmm. and michael would you have a similar view on that or i think it's really good if we can start to link in people in the media in a, in a positive way to say well look you know this is what they do for their diets they're not eating they're not eating rubbish they're eating good food in quantity in order to be able to achieve what they've achieved I think the other thing that's a big influence is parents' influence on other parents. Mm-hmm. And, and I think the other thing is that we're very focused on making children challenge the information they receive. We, we live in a, in a time where information from all sources is challenged. It's really important to encourage children to, to challenge nutritional information that they appear to be getting so that they think about, well, that person is eating that thing and looks like that. Does that make actually any sense at all? You know, to just say, 
it's, it does this, is, there, is there any logic to what you're seeing in this particular video or influencer or, or poster, you know? Yeah. Um, you kind of covered it now, you covered my next question, but again, for both of you, would there be any specific practical tools or advice that you'd give to parents to try and encourage this kind of, uh, that, that kind of position or that kind of view on, on what you're seeing? Yeah, so we know that food behaviours and likes and dislikes, they're very, they're very personal and they're very innate as well. Um, and for children, I suppose they're hardwired in a way to prefer uh, calorie dense, sweet foods. But there's a lot of potential to kind of shape and influence children in terms of, you know, healthy, healthier choices and healthier foods as well. So research showing us that, you know, really um, working with children and trying to introduce healthier choices from a very early age is actually a great way to uh, develop very healthy eating habits for the for the remainder of their life so as young as the age of uh, and even before too to be offering a wide variety of kind of fruits and vegetables and lean protein sources and things like that um to kind of shape their 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 um, behaviors going forward um, from a more practical kind of point as well, children will look to, uh, you know, parents to regulate their, their eating behaviour and that is a key role. Um, so I suppose leading by example and obviously trying to have as healthy a diet as we can ourselves to kind of model these kind of behaviours for our children in the home is really important. Involving children in meal preparation and, um, you know, meal planning and things like that, as, as daunting as that might seem, is really, really beneficial in terms of, and it encourages them to be involved in the process and it has been shown to be in a really positive way of, of helping them kind of choose health, healthier um, alternatives. Mm -hmm. um, other, other things like uh, having the, the focus of the meal to be like a social thing rather than all of the emphasis being on the types of foods that you know we're, we're, we're eating and things like that so that it's a very social event and although everybody's schedules are crazy today but you know when the family can get together and sit around and and talk about their days and just it being a social thing has been shown again to be really positive for children's eating behavior as well um, from a practical point of, of picky eating and things like that or where there's behaviours that we feel are need to be changed. The advice would be to try and tackle one issue at a time and not try and go in and, you know, overcorrect everything all in one go, kind of like a 1st of January approach where you're trying to change everything. Uh, that's been shown to be not very uh, lasting in terms of, but to look at, you know, things like um, perhaps trying to introduce more vegetables and then, you know, being persistent with that as well because it mightn't be met very favourably at the start. Um, and then, you know, later down the road, try and reduce, um, you know, treats and things like that. So just take it one topic at a time and be consistent um, is really important as well. Um, and then I think another really important thing as well is if weight is a concern, to really frame the conversation around being healthy rather than focus on losing weight or trying to reduce weight. So being really conscious of the words that we're using with our children as well. And to, you know, for example, say things like, you know, we won't have treats today because we're we're trying to be healthy and we're trying to be strong or, you know, vice versa. We're going to have this today, which will make us really strong and healthy, you know. Um, and as well, there's fantastic resources out there. I've mentioned Safe Food before. Um, they have a great campaign uh, that's that's in existence called the Start uh, Campaign. And that's really small ways in which we can think about uh, making our children's diets healthier, whether that be portion size, whether that be reducing treats and things like that. Um, the Irish Nutrition 
uh, Dietetic Institute, the INDI. They have fantastic resources as well, as well as mychild.ie from the HSE. So there's great resources and help out there for parents um, to make those changes. It's great. Yeah, it sounds yeah. like great advice. Although I try to include our three kids in uh, food preparation once and yeah. I haven't recovered. Since, yeah. but, yeah. <laughs> it can be challenging. Michael. I'm not saying it's easy. Michael, would you echo those sentiments then? My advice is never to eat anything that's been made by a child. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, yeah, no, I, th I think I think there's uh, yeah, that's very comprehensive. I, I'm the, the one I'm fond of is the five a day. You know, I mean, it, it made such a you know it's made such a difference to diets. It's really important. It's easy to get children into just things like understanding portion size. Um, the other thing that I think is 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 going is is really good is the the work that some of the more, the sports organisations are doing. And, and you know, and uh, both in terms of schools, but also just in terms of clubs and stuff like that, where clearly there's 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 been a, a huge um, focus on giving really good healthy eating advice to young sports people, and I think there's 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 huge resources within those sort of environments, which could be very positive as well. So you know, there's there, there's there's lots and lots of um, uh, there's lots and lots of good advice out there. Um, my favourite one is the um, the UK, the um, the hypnotist. There's a book, Paul McKenna. Yes. The I can make you thin, taste your food and chew your food. You know, it's 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 sort of like, it's so basic, really Gra simple grandmother advice. simple advice, mm -hmm. but actually it's a fundamental for a lot of kids. You know that the and 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 adults as well. We all just inhale our food because we're. So busy. We're so busy. We're in such a rush, and so you know, I, I, I think I think there's some really simple stuff that you can, if you got that into your child, building habits, just building good habits, five a day, taste and chew your food, plenty of activity, being sensible and looking for good food, knowing what good food looks like, you know, mm -hmm. um, which is not always easy. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I, I think we we haven't really touched on it, but I I, I think it's. It's also one of the biggest challenges, the, this concept that a, a healthy diet's not necessarily a cheap diet. Mm -hmm. And actually, a, a cheap diet can be very nutritionally packed, so you can get your energy cheaply, mm -hmm. but it's not good energy. Mm -hmm. and, and then also the concept that there's an awful lot of kids that we're meeting now who are in the situation of dreadful situations. You know, If you imagine children living in multi-occupancy accommodation, in relation to um, emergency accommodation, stuff like that, where there is no prospect of being able to prepare their own food or to, you know, those sort of things. And, and, and those situations challenging diets as well. So there's, there's lots of things where, you know, where options become limited, not because of, it, it, because of finance or because of situation. So yeah. I think that, that they're worth they were thinking about as mm. well. Yeah, yeah, those are worrying situations. But I think there's been a lot of positives from our conversation today. Is there anything else that you'd like to see happen or uh, one particular thing that you would advocate for changing and improving? What would that be, Claire? Yeah, so I've talked obviously a lot about the surveys that we do here and they're, they're excellent, very detailed, but there's a slight issue in that they're only conducted every eight to 10 years. So that leaves large gaps in the data that we're collecting. Whereas in the UK, they collect data on a rolling basis, on a yearly basis. There are cross-sectional surveys that are you know, done uh, on, on a yearly basis. So they're able to really see emerging trends very quickly. And that's something where we're kind of lacking a little bit. So I think, you know, to 
a bit more frequent data collection there. They're expensive surveys to conduct um, and they collect, as I said, a lot of detailed information. So that's kind of why they aren't done as often as they are. But I think, yeah, a little bit more detailed information uh, there through uh, on a more regular basis would, would be great. Um, another uh, really important thing is access to dietitians, particularly in a community setting as well. I think um, we've kind of talked about this before, you know, having access to a dietitian, there are a few kind of community-based dietitians, they're, they're few and far between and very difficult to get access to, but having access to them at a primary care slash kind of community level is, is enormous. So, you know, trying to increase the numbers there, albeit challenging as it is uh, in the current climate, I think would be really beneficial for families. And then lastly, the HSE have some really nice um, initiatives in the community again. And I say community because we're thinking of Slauncha Care and a lot of these kind of initiatives being community-based and services being community-based. Um, the, they have a, a programme called Healthy Food Made Easy. And this is community workers working with families and people's coming in, talking about, you know, cooking and recipes and, and you know, some nutritional information there as well. So that's an example of a really nice initiative, but I think there could be plenty more and some perhaps targeting families specifically. Um, I, think, I think initiatives like that would be, would be great to see going forward. Great, yeah. And Michael, how about you? What would you like to see happen? I think Claire's really spoken very well about the sort of the, the need for the, the community supports and, and really that sort of preventative role of, of education. Um, you mentioned the safe food, which I think is doing is doing a really good job in schools and, and, and sort of getting that message out to the community as well. So it'd be very supportive of that sort of work. I suppose at a slightly more selfishly medically focused level, I think it's really important that people who are at the very extreme ends of nutritional problems, so either the, the eating disorder end of, it, of nutritional problems or the, 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 the true childhood obesity end of nutritional problems are able to access specialist services. And whilst there are specialist services at, at the the eating disorder services are that there are very good services. They're not always easy to access. They that, that, that there's needs to be more support at that at that end in it, available, and also I think there needs to be more support of, available at the the obesity end, with really trying to help children who are coping with the more severe end of obesity to understand that it's not their fault. That they are biologically in a situation where they may not be able to, you know, they, they probably are not going to be able to fix this problem themselves because of the way all of our brains are wired. If, if you achieve a certain level of, of um, excess nutrition, your body is programmed to not let you lose it. And in order for you to get that, that weight down to a healthy lifelong weight, you are going to need services that involve psychology, that involve dietetics, that involve medical assessment for the complications of obesity, which can be severe, and that involve people who are able to m potentially prescribe you medications, which are probably coming along that will be a game changer in terms of treating obesity. And to be able to access further on other treatments that may be necessary as well. So it's really important that the children at the sort of the, the, the very pointy end of, of, of these problems are really, really supported with, with, with expert services. Um, we're doing 
probably okay but could do better with the, at the eating disorder end. I think we're only really beginning to start to address the challenge at the obesity end. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I think that, that's a really important thing that we could, as a takeaway, to grow on and to, and to get better if it's possible. Thanks very much for those really useful take-home messages. That concludes our discussion today and my sincere thanks to our speakers, Dr. Claire Tymon and Dr. Michael Reardon. Uh, further details about upcoming episodes uh, in the My Health series can be found on the RCSI website. You can also find the RCSI My Health series episodes across all major podcast platforms. And RCSI is committed to improving human health and we are proud to be ranked the first in the world for our impact on good health and well-being. Thanks again to our partners, Fleming Medical, an Irish-owned family business with 35 years experience working in pharmacy and healthcare professionals. And we are delighted to have their support for this year's My Health series. From all of us here at RCSI University of Medicine and Health Sciences, thank you for joining us. Thank you for listening to RCSI My Health. We hope you found this episode useful and informative. Don't forget to hit subscribe so you can stay up to date on health-related topics directly from the experts. For more information on RCSI My Health series, please visit rcsi.com forward slash My Health Lectures. <laughs>